And welcome back to the Word Encounter episode 178. And today we're going to start our venture into the New Testament. We completed the Old Testament a couple of episodes ago. And for those that are interested, the uh, Old Testament represents about 70% of the Bible. So we have about 30% to go in order to complete our journey. And the first book of the Gospels, there are four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, Matthew is the first book, and we don't know much about um, uh, who authored the book of Matthew. It is assumed that it is Matthew by some, but by others, not so much. And so we're not 100% sure with regard to who authored the book, but we do believe that it was authored somewhere around 50 to 60 years after uh, Jesus was born, somewhere in that vicinity, and that is assumed for various reasons. <clears throat> the main purpose of the book of Matthew uh, at the time was to convince the Jews, it was written to the Jews, it was to convince the Jews that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, that this Jesus that they had hung and executed on the cross was in fact the Messiah. And so that is the purpose of the book and giving uh, evidences as to why that was the case. And so that was Matthew's uh, purpose, uh, was in order to convince the people that this was the case. So let's get us, let's get us, let's get started with the book of Matthew. And so in chapter one, it starts out because, again, we have to recall what his main purpose is. And so he first has to prove that, Jew, uh, that Jesus has come from a royal lineage, from a line of uh, Israelites, such that he would be eligible to be the Messiah. And so in, uh, in chapter one, verses one through 16, uh, Matthew go, goes through a lineage uh, with regard to uh, people, you know, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, and so on and so forth. And then in verse 16, it says, and Jacob, this is a different Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, uh, who was called the Christ. And so you're going through this long list <clears throat> of people in order to prove to the readers that Jesus is, in fact, the, uh, the Christ. Now, before we move on, there are a couple things I want to highlight here. In verse 3, uh, Tamar is listed. In verse 5, Rahab is li listed. Also in verse 5, Ruth is listed. Now, why might this be important? Well, Tamar was a Canaanite, and she posed as a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute, and Ruth was a Moabitess. She wasn't even Jewish, okay? And so we see here that people from different walks of life are being represented in the line of Jesus. Now, I think this is important. So it can show that, you know, Jesus didn't come from some kind of pure line or whatever. It was representative of all kinds of people. Not only that, uh, these women were Hermetic, and uh, Hermetic peoples were from Africa, and so it is assumed by many that these people had, you know, uh, African blood in them or were dark complected or black, as we would call them. And so what we can say probably is that Jesus was of a mixed race. You know, he was not pure anything, you know, not only from a racial standpoint, but also from a um, a moral background, if you will, with all of these different types of people in his lineage. 
And so he was eligible from my perspective to represent everybody because he was a little, he came from a little bit of everybody. Now, a lot of people get hung up on this thing as far as Jesus's race is concerned. And so you have a faction of people that are just uh, uh, convicted with the, with the notion that Jesus was black and they are just, nobody's going to con- uh, convince them otherwise. And I understand where that, where that comes from, right? Because in a lot of, um, our artistic works uh, that emanate from Europe, you know, they, things were painted and sculptures made and whatnot. Jesus is always depicted as a Caucasian person. And that's understandable because it's coming from them. You know? And so that would make sense. Uh, but there's been a backlash with regard to the, uh, the depiction of Jesus and the, um, how accurate it is. Now, what I do know is that God doesn't care. Because the word says that be you Jew or Greek, in other words, the word is saying, I don't care what you are. God is the God of all. And so if that's the case, then all people, regardless of race, regardless of sex, regardless of anything, are children of the Lord. Okay? And so these, now think about it. If you're a parent and you have more than one child, how does it make you feel? when they are at odds with each other constantly, sometimes uh, at deathly odds with, with each other. How would that make you feel as a parent? I can't help but think that God looks down on how we behave surrounding this race issue and is just shaking his head and it is very, very, very upset and angry, particularly with the people in his church who perpetuate the notion of superiority of anybody over anybody else, you see? And so right now in the United States, when we talk about supremacists, we usually talk about you know white supremacy, but there's also black supremacy. There's also that philosophy and notion out there too. You know, There's also Asian supremacy. And so where people think in the back of their minds with regard to everybody else. When you have pockets of people, these things come up in the back of people's minds. They may not state it, they may not openly confess it or publicly confess it or publicly acknowledge it, but it exists. And so, and the Lord can read our minds. He knows what we're motivated by because the word says he weighs our hearts. So he knows what's inside of us. And so if you have any of that stuff inside of you, you got to confront it. You got to confront it because I don't care if you're as, as black as black can be. And I don't care if you're as white as white can be. Under the tent of the Lord, you guys are siblings, period, end of story, you know. And so this, this, this mess has got to come to an end. We're, we're placing importance and value on things that God looks at, shakes his head, and don't think that there isn't going to be a reckoning for this kind of thinking. I don't care what side or which sides of the fence you are on. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. You're either on the side of the kingdom of God or you're not. Period. Anyway, let's get going. Let's go to verse 18. It says, uh, ooh, it says the nativity of the Christ. Let me scroll down here. Here we go. It says, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. 
after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Now, this is critical, right? It, it doesn't say they're married, but what we know is that in, uh, in ancient times, you know, being married or being engaged was very similar to being married. And so, um, and so it was discovered after they had uh, become engaged that Mary was pregnant. Now, think about this. Think about it as if you're Joseph, you see. So what would your, what would your mindset be when you discovered that your, uh, your engaged wife, the person you're about to marry, who was in fact um, considered your wife under their culture, and she's pregnant, and you know it wasn't you. And it says in verse 19, so her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. So we see that what, what has happened here is that uh, Joseph, wanting to maintain her integrity, knowing how people would look at this, so okay, I'm not going to divorce her. I'm, I'm going to carry this through because I don't want her to be disgraced. That was noble because I know what I would be thinking. And it says, but after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so in a dream, an angel was coming to him and said, look, your wife hasn't been messing around on you, Joseph. This is of God. So don't be afraid to marry her. Go forward. Keep moving. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. In verse 22, what we have is uh, one of the prophetic words in the Old Testament being fulfilled. It says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And so this is spoken in Isaiah 7, 14. It says in verse 23, see, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel which is translated God with us. And so he's going to give birth to a son named God with us. In verse 24, then Joseph woke up. He did as the Lord's angel commanded him. He married her, but he did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. And he named him Jesus. I don't know why that's listed in there, but I guess it's just a point that uh, point out how Joseph was a stand-up guy. He, he, he heard uh, the voice of the Lord through the angels in his dreams. Uh, he went ahead and married her. He didn't touch her sexually until after Jesus was born. Let's go on to chapter 2. And it says, wise men visit the king. It says in verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east traveled in, uh, wise men in the east arrived in Jerusalem. And so we call these the wise men or the magi. So the magi came uh, to Jerusalem. Now, what we don't know is we don't know how many men there were. Now, it, we typically think of it as being three guys, but we don't really know that. <laughs> the word never says that. So we don't know how many there were. It says uh, wise men. So we know that there were uh, more than one. So was it two? Was it 15? Was it 10? We don't really know. It says in verse uh, 2, saying, uh, so the wise men, the Magi came saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
For we saw his star at the rising and have come to worship him. So they saw a star high in the sky. Somehow, I guess via the Holy Spirit, they knew that the king of the Jews was born and they started to travel to find him and discover where he was. Now, how long did this trip take for them to get uh, uh, to Jerusalem? That's all over the map, okay? Some people think it took a couple months because it was a few hundred miles. Other people think it took a couple years, okay? And that the number of miles was in the thousands. It says they came from the east, right? But no particular location. So we don't really know. But it was probably traveling by camel, and the estimates are somewhere between 10 to 15 to 20 miles a day maybe on average. Who knows? Who knows? And so in verse 3 it says, When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Now see, King Herod wasn't a Jew. And so the word is coming forth. It says, um, uh, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And so Herod knows that. Wait a minute. I'm, I'm kind of like the governor of this territory. I'm not, I'm not really a king. Well, it says king here, but he's under somebody. He's, he's more like a governor of the territory. But I'm not a Jew. And it says that where is the person who has been born king of Jews, meaning that they're going to replace me or my, my son or some, something. No, 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 this isn't right. <laughs> and it says, so he assembled all the chief priests and scribes um, of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. So he assembled all the priests and everybody who knew the scriptures. And, and so Herod is essentially saying, okay, what do the scriptures say where this guy is going to be born? In verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, they told him because this is what is written by the prophet. And so we go to verse 6, and this is in Micah uh, chapter 5, verse 2. It says, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. So Bethlehem was a little territory in Judah. Uh, but the prophecy is coming forth. It's saying, you aren't by any means the least of these, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. See, because from you will come a king. And it says in verse 7, Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them, to, um, and asked them the exact time the star appeared. And so Herod is trying to calculate, okay, how old might this child be? He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Here's lying. He just wants to know where Jesus is. In verse 10, it says, when they saw the star, uh, the Magi that is, uh, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, uh, with Mary his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Now, a couple things here. It says they saw the child. Jesus is estimated was probably about two years old when this happened. In the nativity scenes, we tend to see the wise men there uh, bringing their gifts to, to a baby Jesus and um, in a manger. But it says here that they entered the house and saw the child with Mary. And so the, the nativity scenes and whatnot that we tend to get used to are probably not accurate. And, and so that's that. And so... Um, and fall into their knees, they worship him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's why people assume that there were three wise men because uh, it lists three gifts. But again, we don't know. It says in verse 12, And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they, being the Magi, returned to their own country by another route. 
See, the Holy Spirit warned them, and so they went in a different direction. They didn't go back to Herod and tell them where, tell him where Jesus was. It says, uh, the flight into Egypt. Then in verse 13, it says, after they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up, take the child and his mother, mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and kill him and kill him. So the Holy Spirit is now warning Joseph. And so he's telling, okay, this is what you got to do, dog. You got to get up and you got to roll because Herod wants to kill him and we can't have that. And then we go on to verse 15. Uh, and this is in reference to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. It says, uh, he stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt, I call my son. And so again, that's in Herod uh, chapter 11, verse 1. And so we see here that as we move into the times of Jesus, we see here prophecy being fulfilled. And again, these prophetic words are at least 500 years ago. You know, I said, well, at least 400 years ago. Okay, at least 400 years ago. And we see the words being fulfilled. It says the massacre, the massacre of the innocents. Verse 16, then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by his wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in, the, uh, in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. That's why I say, you know, uh, Jesus was probably when the, when the Magi went to him, He's probably at least two or at least approaching two, not a baby, not an infant. It says, um, who were two years old and under in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet was fulfilled. So we have another prophetic word here being fulfilled. It was Jeremiah 31 uh, verse 15. It says, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. And so we see that the prophetic word is going out that Israel is going to be crying because Herod has sent uh, men to Bethlehem, uh, <coughs> excuse me, has sent men to where Jesus was uh, in order to kill all of the boys. He said, if I don't know who it is, I'm just going to wipe them all out. Okay. <laughs> then it says um, the return to Nazareth. It says in verse 19, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in, e in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. Verse 22, But when he heard that uh, Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he, being Joseph, was afraid to go there. And so Joseph became afraid to go. Now, we do know that the word says that we aren't created with the spirit of fear. We, we haven't gotten to that part yet, but <laughs> that's what it says. But we, it says here that Joseph was afraid to go there, but then there's another part to it. There's an adjunct to it. It says, and being warned in a dream. And so he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew uh, to the region of Galilee. So he just didn't react to fear. Because he could have been displaying courage. He could have been afraid, but gone there anyway. But it says, not only was he afraid, but he was warned in a dream not to go there. So he withdrew to uh, the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in the town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's go to chapter 3. The Herald of the Messiah. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea 
and saying, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. In verse 3, which has been referenced to Isaiah 40, uh, 40, chapter 40, verse 3, he is the one, um, for he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah who said, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. So again, we have a prophetic word being fulfilled. Verse 4, now John had a camel-haired garment with a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. John was a wild dude. <laughs> Living out in the jungle, basically, you know, eating locusts and wild honey. Wild honey, not just honey, wild honey. In verse 5, then people from uh, Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Verse 7, then he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious people of the day, uh, the scholars and, and, you know, those, the priests, and they, they had broken off into factions and they believed different things. And so it says uh, and they were all Jewish. When he saw many of the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Verse 8, therefore, Produce fruit consistent with repentance. You see, John the Baptist is seeing through these guys. He's saying, okay, if you're going to come, you know, baptism is available to everybody, but you better be sincere. See, because your fruit needs to be consistent with repentance. You can't just come here and go through some actions. He's calling them out. saying, if you're going to do this, you better be sincere or else. Then it says in verse 9, and don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up uh, children for Abraham from these stones. In other words, uh, they would say, look, we're special. You know, the Lord is always going to take care of us because we're from Abraham. And John is saying, look, dude, he said, God can raise up children for Abraham from stones. You know, don't think that you're going to skate on this just because you're in the line of Abraham. Verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I am. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What, what I find interesting about this is how did, not, how did John know about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit hadn't come on the scene yet, but he knew some kind of way. <laughs> the baptism of Jesus in verse 13. Then Jesus came from uh, Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him. John didn't want to do it. He said, I need to be baptized by you. And yet you come to me. Can, so can you imagine John knowing through some kind of way that Jesus was the Messiah and he's coming to be baptized by him? And so John's confused. He's like, wait a minute, this can't be right. You know, I'm supposed to usher you in and you want me to baptize you? You know, I'm supposed to announce you. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm subservient to you. How, how can I baptize you? So we go on to verse 15, and this is, um, this is pretty interesting. Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. Jesus is saying, this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. I wonder if John knew what that meant. What Jesus is saying is that people are coming to you, John, to be baptized uh, and confessing their sins. 
But Jesus is sinless, and therefore there's no need for him to be baptized. However, the plan was for Jesus to take on the sins of all mankind, and that his, his, um, his, his baptism would be substitutionary. You know, it would be, uh, he would substitute himself, taking on the sins of the world for all of mankind. And so I don't think, I don't think anybody knew this plan at that point. And so John said, just okay, and he baptized him. In verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Can you imagine? That's kind of how you make your entrance, if you will, to a wider public by a voice coming down from heaven, confirming who you are. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. If you were one of the people that were in that vicinity when this was happening, wouldn't that have freaked you out? <laughs> it would have freaked me out. It would have definitely freaked me out. I would have looked up at the heavens and then looked down at Jesus, looked up at the heavens and looked at Jesus and like, who are you, dude? <laughs> who are you? I mean, that would have sent a significant degree of fear and trembling through me. I know myself and I know if I had witnessed something like that, what it would have done to me. So anyway, with that, we will pick it up in chapter 4 tomorrow. And again, um, in Romans, the invitation has gone out and continues to go out. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the word says that you will be saved. That's all that's required. Confessing with your mouth and sincerely believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord. And it says that you will be saved, saved from eternal damnation. That doesn't mean your life is going to be necessarily any easier here in this life at this time. It just means that a destination is secure for you. There's a security in latching on to something that is not going to change. You know, it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And with that, we'll pick it up tomorrow in episode, what, 179, I believe it'll be. And we will continue on in chapter four. Everybody, please take care of yourself. Be blessed and stay safe. Bye-bye.